Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Tech Time with Summer's F1. I am your host, Matt Trumpets, and we have none other than that story denizen of the tech team, Matthew Summerfield, technical editor at motorsport.com, who has surfaced long enough to spout some F1 wisdom our way. But before we get started, I have to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves, and we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. Might be wrong. We're first. Oh, Summers, it is good to see you again. Thanks for taking a little time to come have a chat with us. No problem, Matt. It's good to be here. Good to see you as always. And I have to comment briefly for those of you who are audio only, he has worn a very special and highly celebratory shirt as well. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a Hawaiian theme going on. There's a there's a bit of a summer vibe, let's say. I do like it, and the summer break is kind of interesting. I, I guess from a technical point of view, because it is sort of a the trends are all set. You have an idea what's going on, but there's still sort of a lot of time left in the season for things to change. Yeah, I mean, obviously at this point in the season, we've kind of seen the bulk of the developments uh, in terms of what we're going to get this season. Will those start to see some convergence in the back end of the season? And then obviously a little bit of focus on the 2024 cars uh, in terms of, of teams looking at development streams that they might be uh, interested in with next season as well. Okay, that's fantastic. What I'd like to talk about first and this is just because everyone is talking about it, and um, I'll, I'll begin with my flaming mild take. But the, there has been rumors going around, there have been rumors going around, that the FIA might actually 
get rid of DRS and qualifying altogether. And I'm curious, how true is that? And, and what kind of an effect do we think that might have? My personal take is as far as Red Bull goes, because the accompanying the rumor is this is a way to make things harder for Red Bull is I don't think it'll make a lick of difference to Red Bull, whether or not there's DRS and qualifying or not. But uh, you are more learned than I. So so what are you what are you thinking and, and what is your knowledge on this subject? OK, so I think it's an interesting take. Uh, I think it's a step backwards in many respects because if you remember when DRS was first introduced we actually had unlimited DRS in qualifying uh, that soon got tailed off when teams could find a way to run DRS through uh, the 130R corner in, in Suzuka uh, which obviously was Red Bull at the time as well so that that put pay to that uh, I think it could be interesting in some respects because of the way in which that the teams set their cars up for use of DRS through a through a race weekend obviously sometimes they'll sacrifice uh, qualifying pace to improve uh, their performance during the race u- utilizing DRS uh, and vice versa so there are some strategic aspects to why this might be interesting i don't think it's the answer to where we should be going with DRS so, as you know i've talked about things in the past about my personal take on on how i think DRS should be used in the sport but um this is just a, a mild sort of change to the regulations in many ways from a sporting aspect, uh, but I don't think it would make things particularly different. It's just going to make it a, a different strategic or tactical uh, interest uh, from a, a qualifying perspective to a race perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, if if I think about it a little bit, would I be sort of wrong in assuming that essentially teams that can do well in a race, but essentially have a poor lift drag coefficient, i.e. they are draggier for the amount of downforce they create, would simply be shuffled to the back of the race at the start and then have a harder time moving forward because they're essentially using DRS to compensate for, oh, should we be fancy and call it non-optimal aero design? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's also other things to think about here in the way in which teams set up, as I mentioned. So um, if we think about the relationship between the diffuser downforce generation, the beam wing and the rear wing, they all talk to one another in many respects. And we'll get to this a little bit later in, in terms of where Red Bull might be at. But if you think about using a higher downforce rear wing, but use a beam wing setup that doesn't carry as much drag, versus somebody who is doing the opposite, then you're changing the DRS ratio. So, you know, as I say, from a tactical and strategic point of view, this might pay out for some teams, but it may, you know, not work in in the respect that perhaps the FIA, if indeed this does come to fruition, they're looking to to obviously change the makeup of how things work. I don't know if it's actually going to do that uh, for too long because the teams will just work their way around it. Well, yeah, you would expect that. Um, but I do want to talk about an observation that you made before we got started, which is that one of the biggest issues with DRS as as a tactic in the sport is that there's not really any kind of a defense for it. So the defending driver has no way to fend off a car with enough uh, advantage in DRS. And um, I, I thought about this because uh, there was an IndyCar race this weekend and uh, Scott Dixon won it uh, through fuel saving. 
But at one point in the race, he had something like a 20 or 30 second advantage in push to pass over his nearest rival because he'd been fuel saving the whole race. And I want to use that to bring up your brilliant idea about how DRS or anything like this should be used, which is namely to leave it to the drivers and or the strategists on the team to figure out where to use it best. Yeah, I mean, again, I think DRS should be used in a, in a manner that the, the driver has more control over um, in terms of it's more of a tactical advantage to the driver, whether it be for attack or defence. Unfortunately, the way that DRS came about, it became more of an overtaking aid uh, because of the wake problem that, that Formula 1 had at the time. Now, obviously, because of the this generation of cars has supposedly moved the, the needle in that respect, then you would expect that we should be able to get into a position more easily to make those overtakes. The way that I personally think that uh, DRS should be used is pretty much like the push-to-pass system that you've just mentioned in IndyCar. So if you give them so many seconds or so many uses of DRS during the course of a race, then it becomes a tactical battle between uh, the drivers as to how how it's used. And then that means that it could be used for attack or defence. Now, I still think that there should be zones, uh, as we have now in that respect, but you lose the one-second thing, uh, which again is, is something that's a bit arbitrary because... One team's DRS is more powerful than another team's, so that one second doesn't really bear out. Um, it did in the the beginnings of DRS because we we shortened and lengthened the zone at, at race weekends. Again, this is where the needle has moved from when DRS was first introduced. But it could be even more tactical than that. You know, you could give a time allotment over the course of an entire race weekend or a, a pu- amount of pushes that you can use over the entire course of a, a race weekend rather than just the race. And then obviously that becomes a, a battle or a sub-battle between free practice sessions, the qualifying sessions, sprints and the race. Uh, and then it becomes even more interesting as to who saved uh, their DRS usage uh, and where that pans out during the course of a race and as an added bonus it will probably stop drs trains uh, because then you have to play a a bit of a game of chicken uh, and not everybody's going to be wanting to press their drs every single time in order to deal with that problem so basically kind of like the game we play now with uh tire allotments across the entire weekend and yes if you were playing along at home you may have your first drink the other thing that that as a side uh, quest on, on this you, that you could actually introduce as well is that where you where you qualify could also give you a, an extra few passes for argument's sake. You know, if you're starting down the back of the grid, you get a, an extra few passes to those that start at the front of the grid. So there are many ways in which that you could reutilize DRS. I think it's we've had it for over well over a decade now. Perhaps it's time to just mix things up. And it's not like we don't have sprint races to try these things out in either. You know, the format allows us in some ways to experiment, and that could be a way of looking at it differently and give these sort of things a try. Well, I like that. And I did bring up sort of um, uh, entertainingly the tire allotment, but we also saw the first usage of the alternate tire allotment. And I realized that I don't think we've spoken to you since that happened. So real quick, uh, just a recap and your impressions of whether or not that was a successful experiment for the sport. Uh, Again, it's something just a little bit different, isn't it? So uh, that the problem that you you encounter when we run these sorts of experiments is that um, the teams don't know how they're going to work to begin with. So 
these things always look very good from the outset. Uh, but then, unfortunately, the teams then get very good at being able to change their uh, their direction to improve how they work over the course of a race weekend. So, un- although obviously uh, it, it perhaps was successful on the first attempt, I'm not so sure that over a period of time that would work. And I think that might be the way to look at these things: is that uh, perhaps there needs to be. Uh, more jeopardy involved in making decisions over the course of a race weekend and you have different rules for different races at the end of the day and that's again where you know drs for 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 example uh you know you're not going to have 25 passes in one race and uh, on every race you will mix it up and have them at different races the different amounts um and i think that's where you the, the, some variability uh might help to improve the the sporting side of things and as I've always mentioned, the problem with DRS is that I think fans find it too artificial in that it's more of a slam dunk pass uh, with, with the driver that's that's attacking. If you if it's a, a system that's allowed to attack and defend, then you lose some of that and perhaps people will be more on board with DRS uh, as a system that can be used in the sport. Yeah, well, and then let's go ahead. I mean, we're sort of looking to the future a little bit anyway with our first question here. Uh, there's already a discussion about active arrow and the next regulation set would this be essentially used to replace drs is this something else entirely and are we basically at risk of the same problems that we're already seeing now that drs is sort of a mature aspect of of the teams and how they approach the race weekend i think from the 2026 side of things uh things are going to work a little bit differently because we're we're trying to use active uh arrow from a a drag saving point of view so i think it will be something that's sort of tied in all the time uh they'll still want something that overpowers that in terms of like a drs uh system so i do think that there'll be sort of layers to to your um active aero and then obviously drs on top of that but we'll have to wait to see how the the regulations actually get framed in, in many ways Okay, so I'm going to pivot very cleverly now. Uh, We've been talking about DRS and we've been talking about advantage. And that clearly to me brings up Red Bull. And so uh, the first question I have, and this is a very big general question, is they clearly, and Max especially, has a very obvious advantage to the rest of the field. But we are essentially halfway through this regulation set. Do you think there is any team out there that can cash them before the regulations change again? Unfortunately, unless we see some regulation changes that sort of has an impact on the entire field and draws Red Bull back to everybody else in in doing so, I think we're sort of in the realms of where we've been in the past, that until we get right to the end of a regulation set, I can't see the teams making a big enough jump to be able to catch Red Bull. Having said that, obviously, they did take that penalty, uh, which is going to have an impact on their development from throughout the course of this year. And we've already seen that in many respects. Uh, and certainly in the tail end of the season, I don't see, think, think that we'll see a huge amount of development from, from Red Bull. But also the 2024 car, uh, I think perhaps people aren't quite uh, up to date with how that will have an impact on next year's car. And that then obviously does allow the other teams to perhaps vault towards them. 
But as I've already mentioned, I think that it might be a bridge too far uh, in, in many respects. And uh, until we see bulk convergence on many of the, the sort of main aerodynamic concepts of this regulation set, uh, we could be struggling to see uh, a, a front-end battle, even though the midfield battles have obviously been quite entertaining in many many ways. Yeah, well, I mean, if I think about other... The, the reason I ask is, like, we saw by about 2017 in the last set of regulations, Ferrari beginning to get close and making a run of it with Mercedes, and, and we're approaching that. But the difference to me, or the thing that I would worry about, would be that it it seems like everybody was very, very far away at the beginning. Like, they got it mostly or completely wrong except for red bull so it's sort of a time left versus a diminishing returns equation um and let's talk about drs a little bit because we have the head aerodynamicist at red bull out there mocking the other teams about drs and about even their basic understanding of why red bull is doing as well as it is saying that he can't believe they haven't figured out what's going on there. Well, I, I'm sure you're smarting the, smarter than all the other Formula One teams put together. So why is he, what is he doing with this? What is he talking about? Can you explain that a bit? Okay, well, I wouldn't say that I'm smarter than any of the Formula One teams. In Might one. have been hyperbole there. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I, as I mentioned earlier in the, the discussion about DRS, I think the one thing that differs with Red Bull compared to many of the other teams is the, their approach to uh, the, the combination of the rear wing and the beam wing setup. So it's something that they've really carried over from the RB18 and really expressed it more in the RB19. If you look at their setup uh, throughout the course of most of this season, unless they're at a high downforce circuit, they're running a solo beam wing. Uh, and that obviously means that they're, they're producing less downforce and less drag from that particular component. But it's a compound thing because of the way that those two flow structures or three flow structures, if you count the diffuser and everything else that's going on at the rear end, connect to one another uh, in, in as much as the way that they upwash uh, upstream of, of each other. So you, you they sort of talk to one another in, in an aerodynamic perspective. So if you imagine Red Bull running a high downforce rear wing uh, with a low downforce beam wing it means that when they open the drs they're shedding much more drag from that higher downforce rear wing and that's where i think that uh the the discussion point comes from in terms of what they're actually doing it's just that the other teams are having to bite off more than they can chew in terms of what they're using in terms of the beam wing versus how big a rear wing they're using now the other team that have sort of stumbled into this and in a different way in some respects because of the where they're positioned in terms of the downforce that they're able to generate is Williams. Now, they're the other team that have trended towards just running a single beam wing element. Uh, and, it, and it shows in their trap figures. If you look at them, when they're not running DRS uh, against some of the other teams, they're one of the quickest teams. Uh, and I think that's purely down to the setup that I've just mentioned of having uh, the beam wing talking to the rear wing uh, from an aerodynamic perspective and the amount of downforce and drag that are obviously uh, generated from a ratio point of view. Okay, so explain how that beam wing functions a little bit more. Obviously, on its own, viewed in isolation, it's a way to add downforce at the back of the car. But it seems to me that you're talking about the importance, one, of connecting the diffuser output to the 
center of the car's output to the air that's coming off of the rear wing. If those aren't connected, then the aerodynamics don't work. But so is that its most important function or is it also involved in how well you're getting air through and out of the diffuser? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a function of each other. They all work together to to uh, generate both downforce uh, and drag. So when you obviously put DRS open, you're effectively trying to shut those off as well. So uh, you, you're gaining from having less drag on the beam wing by using a single element. Uh, you're gaining from having the the downforce from a, a rear wing that is much larger than your rivals. So during the corner phase of, of the uh, of, of a circuit you are uh using the car to balance from the rear wing uh, but then you're shutting these things off with drs so you're you're sort of compounding everything um with the drs open it's it's just a different way of approaching it um it's something that we used to see pre-2014 when the beam wings were in use then as well and red bull sort of were the kings back then of this situation so uh, as uh, pierre sort of said he can't quite understand why the te- the other teams haven't caught on to this well i don't think it's that they haven't caught on to it it's just that they are approaching the the ratio differently to to red bull um uh, and that is because of how their car in general works um in terms of how it creates downforce and its drag profile Okay, so I'm I'm already loving this, and I'm going to ask you another big general discussion question, and namely that is, what are we missing here? I mean, all of us, I think, in Formula One are subject to bright, shiny object disorder. Oh, look, McLaren, they're now the fastest team because they did well at a single race. But you have the long view. You sit back and you look at these changes race after race. You have a much better idea of where these teams are when you average all the different racetracks in. So is there something that's missing sort of from the general Formula One discussion that you feel like really ought to be upfront and present? I think in general, it's as it's always been, you know, the the important low-hanging fruit is where the most gains can be made. Uh, And teams decide upon where they're spending their development to try to get to that low-hanging fruit and certain teams will take one route certain teams will take another in my opinion red bull spent a huge amount of their resources in the beginning of this regulation set on understanding how to get the best from their floor um and obviously how the side pods worked and other teams perhaps lent more on other areas of the car based on their experience prior to the prior regulations. Um, I'm talking about the likes of Mercedes here uh, who have had to unfortunately walk back, say the zero pod solution uh, because it just doesn't work as they expected it to under this current set of regulations. The prevailing regulations are always the factor here. You know, Formula One is very circular in how cars are designed. We see many things that come back after time because suddenly they're more of a potent force once again. Uh, and so we're we're at that point in, in this regulation set where teams are now starting to sort of hone in on certain design aspects. Um, and obviously we'll get to many of those in the course uh, of looking through the rest of the teams. But there are some interesting development areas that we're starting to see, but the bulk of where teams have to have had their focus in the in, in the original uh, design aspect is the floor, the side pods, and how those interact with one another to generate the kind of downforce that's available from 
uh, again, ride height is a is a major contributing factor because of the the way that the the cars generate downforce, um, and how everything just talks to one another. That's the the key factor. Um, obviously, Red Bull got it right in many of those those areas, the side pods and the floor, because as we're now seeing, other teams are, have ventured down those pathways uh, in terms of development. Okay, so so tell, riddle me this then. I'm looking at these teams. I'm looking at their development. I'm reading your articles on motorsport, which everyone should religiously, to keep up with this all. And I noticed that, you know, some teams are bringing rear wings to every other race. Some teams are bringing new side pods, for example, to every other race. Do you, looking at it from your perch, have a sense of which teams are really developing the concept they have versus which teams are trying to just simply compensate to the end of the season for problems that they're not able to fix? And if the answer is Red Bull is the only one developing and everyone else is compensating, I will be sad, but I will accept that as an answer. Uh, get ready to accept then, Matt, because, you know, that's kind of where no! we're at, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's kind of where we're at. Um, as you mentioned, st- circuit specificity in terms of upgrades – or updates, as I prefer to call them, because not everything that goes on the car is an upgrade. Uh, Oftentimes, it can be a downgrade. Uh, Tends to be front wings and rear wings because they're the balancing side of things. So teams change those because of the amount of downforce that they need or the the amount of drag that they want to reduce at that particular venue. So they're the things that you tend to see the most um, from an iterative point of view uh, from circuit to circuit, because you'll have low, medium, medium high, and high downforce configurations. The one thing that has changed, and I don't know if you you've noticed this, but because of the way that the calendar now changes has changed, uh, we're not seeing so much uh, teams bring those kind of circuit specifics in advance. So in the past, we might have seen a Monza spec rear wing arrive at Spa, but because there's now the Dutch Grand Prix in between and the summer break in between. We don't tend to see that happen because it's too too far forward in the development schedule. And you're not going to have a Monza spec rear wing available uh, at Spa because it's just too far away. And unfortunately, that kind of is a disadvantage in many ways because we used to see teams perhaps try stuff that they that would benefit them at Spa that they might not otherwise have tried um, because of the downforce level that they think they should be running at uh, and the drag level that they should be running at. Uh, but they'll just chuck something on the car that they've got coming up for Monza just to give it a go. Oh, suddenly the car comes alive um, and they go for it during the race. Um, but we don't get that anymore because of the calendar shuffle. And I think we've seen that uh, in many respects in other areas as well from high downforce, medium downforce, all the way up to, to low downforce. So that that obviously has changed because of the calendar. Well, and, and the cost cap too, I have to say. That's, that's clearly, and the limited testing as well, all these new sort of sporting regulations are, are going to play into it. And I, I sort of felt like I noticed this last season, but I really feel like I've noticed this season that a lot of the teams, rather than sort of showing up bringing like their first big update sometime around Spain and then just iteratively 
iteratively adding onto the car at every single race. And like you say, bringing stuff, maybe a race or two ahead of time to get some real world data on it. Instead, it seems like most teams are, are aiming at one or two points in the season, bringing a lot of stuff and then just, just kind of coasting. I mean, I think McLaren is maybe a great example of this saying, yeah, yeah, you know, because of production reasons, we, we didn't have a rear wing that was even vaguely appropriate for spa. So we just showed up and did whatever we did. Yeah, that that's problematic, obviously, isn't it? And as you mentioned, the cost cap, uh, the resource restrictions in terms of how they're handicapped uh, from a wind tunnel and CFD perspective and how that pans out in terms of the, the race calendar. You also have to think about the sprints as well that are, are now part of the calendar. Um, we've now got six of those jot- dotted around uh, the various venues and that has a, a major impact on development because we lose a free practice session uh, and we're basically chucking stuff uh, straight into the deep end as such. So teams don't want to bring major upgrade packages to those particular races because they've got no time to to put them on the car and test them out. And if they do, they're probably going to split them between their drivers in order that one driver has one package and another driver has another in order that they can have a back-to-back uh correlation between the two uh after the race after the event uh, and they can obviously gain data between both of them uh, but yeah it, it is a difficult one to try to balance for all of the teams all of them are doing it in different ways um but as you mentioned you sort of either get uh there's two types of development streams you either get drip fed all the way throughout the course of the season and just smaller updates time after time or you get the larger packages uh, and as i mentioned earlier about the calendar shift you know spain was what round seven this year compared to yeah. where it used to historically be round five and so it becomes a different point in the season uh, a different point at which the the the, the uh, aerodynamics etc have to to work on to get towards that uh, introduction of that package you know you've had so many flyaways prior to that uh, where they they don't want to send huge packages out on flyaways because of the cost elements uh, and so it changes how you you develop your car throughout the course of the season because of that yeah well it seems like a lot of teams were sort of aiming, I think, at Emola really for their first big update package, which wound up being Monaco and then uh, dripped in uh, uh, to Canada but uh, i have I have sort of noticed that Red Bull interestingly aside from azerbaijan they they haven't really brought they haven't been that same oh here's a whole brand new big package they there's they seem to be kind of in drip feeding mode a little bit is that an accurate observation from uh your point of view yeah and i, I think that's down to the fact of the CFD and wind tunnel allocation that they're working with, because not only obviously do they have the the lease at their disposal in the beginning, they also had the penalty on top of that. So they're at, at the worst case scenario in terms of how they, they deal with development this season, which will carry over on to next year's car as well. Interestingly, though, I don't know if you noted the, uh, the, the latest side pod update uh, that they had uh, in terms of how they interpreted the regulations, a very clever move in many respects because radiators and duct work are isolated from 
the percentages that you have in CFD and wind tunnel. So you have almost an unlimited amount of wind tunnel time to develop just those aspects. So because they worked incredibly hard in improving their side pod design, they were able to do that because of the way in which that they cleverly adopted uh, the, the regulations. So, uh, they separated the radiator and duct work from essentially their uh, aerodynamic side of the development. And they were able to spend unlimited time on those aspects and then work on the aero side of it uh, to, to make further gains. So a very clever interpretation of the regulations when you're boxed in a corner because you don't have the resources at your disposal. Yeah, I like that. And just so that I'm clear, I'm understanding when you talk about that, you're talking about the internals, like, uh, the internal ducting of the side pod, where the air goes, where it exits, and the actual shape of the radiator interchange itself, you have unlimited testing for that because it's essentially cooling. Yeah, as long as there's no forces being measured. So you can't run aero testing effectively, but as long as there's no forces being measured, you have unlimited uh, wind tunnel CFD time on those those internal components, yeah. Wow. Well, uh, it shouldn't surprise me at all that they've been this clever because they've always been that clever. Um, And let's talk now, since we brought up next season, we've heard a couple of teams already into the, well, you know, eh, next season is going to be our season. Are there any teams we should be watching for hints of what they might be doing next year? with stuff that they're bringing this season? Uh, again, I think that's a difficult one to to really try to measure because the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari, for argument's sake, uh, have obviously made a switch in some respects towards the sort of concepts that we've already seen uh, applied to other teams. Red Bull, um, Alpine and Alpha Tauri were the first adopters of what we call the downwash generation of, of SidePod. And so we've sort of seen everybody else head in that direction. However, the problem that Mercedes have is where their side impact support spar is, the upper one, uh, because it sits in a position that doesn't allow them to fully adopt that concept. Um, It also means that their cockpit is slightly further forward. And we've already seen that Lewis Hamilton has uh, kind of, hinted at the fact that that is problematic from a driver's perspective in in the in as much as how uh, the car reacts and the forces that he and George have to have to deal with and so with Mercedes unfortunately it is a bit of a frankenpod uh, that they've ended up with because their design can't fully adopt the downwash ramp because of the inlet and that's where perhaps uh, the design of the side pods will sort of trend towards uh, towards the end of this regulation set. If you remember what we had in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2021. Oh, yeah, I clearly remember that. We, we have the, the, the sort of design that Ferrari first bought out with a low-slung side impact protection spar. Everybody went in that direction with their side pods. Uh, by the time 2020 come along, every single car had a version of that particular side pod. And now we're already starting to see that happen with the the design direction that the the trio that I mentioned earlier took. Um, Obviously, Aston Martin last season pretty much got their photocopier out again and copied the Red Bull side of side pods, but they moved their 
their needle this year um, and went in a, another direction with the really deep gully. And we've seen other teams now adopt that uh, in terms of the, the McLaren, for argument's sake. And so there are sort of diverging uh, developments coming from the tree. Uh, that's the way that I always like to see it. You know, it's a development tree and you get different branches from uh, the, the original branch that starts to occur. Uh, and so Red Bull are sort of sat on still on the original uh, branch in terms of the shape of the side pod, but they've pushed the development on the inlet side of things. And that's interesting in, in as what I mentioned earlier, what they're doing with the cooling side of, of the side pod. So there's loads of different design variants within one major overall uh, concept. And, and that's what's really interesting. And I, I do think that they'll still continue to be that as we head throughout the course of the next uh, couple of seasons. Okay. I just, I'm, I'm going to get slightly specific here. Um, Aston, McLaren, Alpine all have variations of the, the gully. The water slide, yeah. The water slide, whatever you want to call it. And Ferrari now as well. But and I think if Haas could afford it, they'd have it as well. But anyway, am I wrong in thinking that Red Bull seem to be very much working on the undercut side of their side pod instead of the gully? Or is that just me not knowing enough to understand they're just different things entirely? Uh, no, they're, they're interconnected in many ways. Uh, obviously, all of the teams look to, to create the most space under the, the side pod uh, for the undercut. Uh, but it's a balancing act between the internal componentry that they're trying to to house within, uh, dealing with the tire wake. Uh, that is the main reason why this particular side pod route is the the best variant of them all, uh, because it helps deal with that tire wake and the turbulence and and everything that's created by the front end. Um, and and then it's all about tying in the flow structures with the floor itself as well, and how uh, teams incorporate those two two together. Um, Andrea Stella talks about it as a wider side pod. Uh, that that is how McLaren uh, tend to see it because they want the wider bodywork to be able to deal with the weight tur- turbulence and also incorporate the the flow structures towards the floor. Uh, but there are, as I mentioned, different ways of dealing with the same sort of problem. Uh, the water slide, I think, is something that interests teams because of the way that Ferrari came along with their bathtub solution. Uh, because of the drag versus downforce scenario, so it's just a different way of uh, of dealing with the same problem and how you make all of these flow structures talk to one another uh, uh, to improve the aero map over the entire entirety of the car. I may not be the first to have come up with this, but I will be sad if you don't from now on call McLaren side pods wide pods <laughs> yeah. in honor of that quote. Well, we we did call the Alpine uh, side pods the slide pods when they first came out with the gully as well. So, yeah, there are variations variations upon the same thing, aren't there? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, uh, let's talk about McLaren a little bit. They announced they didn't have the car they wanted but they were going to build the car they wanted and bring it at some point in the season. And they did that in Austria and in England to uh, rousing immediate success. Um, and I have some questions about this because it was such a big jump for them. And because they did so well at those tracks, because it seems like whether it was luck or planning, they brought the development to the tracks where it was absolutely going to do the best against everybody else. Um, is it that much better than anything we have seen so far from Aston or Mercedes or Ferrari? Or is it just, again, a track-specific thing? And related to that, how much is that going to cost them an in, in inability to bring race-specific developments like I'll hold up spa we've already talked about as an example, but, but is this sort of where we bet it all on one number on the roulette table and we won, but now we're going to have to live off that for the rest of the year. Yeah. Well, this is the difficulty in many respects uh, of changing your development stream whilst it's already in process. And we've seen this historically in other regulation sets and we're seeing it in other teams as well uh, i'll highlight mercedes and ferrari in that respect because um you know you can't just turn the tap off entirely you still have to continue to to bring or drip feed developments from your old uh development path or you do turn them off almost entirely which is what mclaren essentially did um and just go for it all in one hit which is what we saw in Austria and Silverstone. So it's a balancing act. And I think it's difficult for people to appreciate how um, how different it can be for these teams to make that, that call and, and that decision because they don't have, with their original design, let's say, let's look at the zero pod on the Mercedes for argument's sake. They have a year's worth of data from the previous car. They have the, fir- the opening phase of the season's data from that particular car and they have a very good model in terms of cfd and wind tunnel of those components now 
if you're going to suddenly throw a new concept onto the car, you don't have a good interpretation of what you are going to put on there until you've iterated, until you've made several steps in the CFD and the wind tunnel. And that's where I think you find the likes of Mercedes currently are, Ferrari currently are, because they're midway between concepts. So until they iterate further with what we've seen, you you won't see them unlock the full potential of, of that particular design concept. They'll have to take things further, as I've already mentioned, in terms of Mercedes, especially with the the the, uh, the fairing that they have over their side impact protection spa. Uh, but from McLaren's perspective, they made a very early call in the season to just literally cut the development down uh, from where they were heading, stop it, start again, iterate, take the pain early on and then throw everything at it all in one major hit. The problem with doing so is that once you've put all of that develop those development eggs in that basket, you've then got to make those parts. And that's why we saw only one set of parts arrive for Lando in Austria, the car get updated for um, the other side of the garage in Silverstone, and we'll start to see that drip feed start again as they bring more parts uh, throughout the rest of the season. And that's why they didn't have a rear wing for Spa, essentially, because they'd spent all of their development getting to this point. And so from a manufacturing point of view, you've made a huge amount of parts. You can't also make a rear wing because you just don't have the resources to do so. Okay. Um, before we get to the thing I really want to talk about, one more question. Uh, we saw Aston have a similar development strategy only they brought their car at the beginning of the year they did very well with it and and you know hats off they saw i think what alfa romeo did last year by just showing up at the car that was on the weight limit grab a huge haul of points and then hang in there but their first big update on the car hasn't necessarily made it faster is this also a risk for mclaren now that sort of we made the one big step, but it seems like maybe that second step, unless you're Red Bull, who's already nine steps ahead, it can be a bit of a doozy. It's like the difficult second album, isn't it? Basically, um, yeah. you know, this is the problem when you when you're working in iterative design. Uh, sometimes you might make a misstep that doesn't quite work with something else, and I think that might be more to be the point with Aston. Is not that it doesn't work; it's just that. It doesn't all work together. Something that some, there's a piece missing outside of the jigsaw puzzle, effectively. Uh, and I know that there has been the rumours going around about uh, the, the flexible front wing on the Aston uh, and how that might have played into their performance drop off as well. So there are other outside factors that could possibly be uh, causing Aston to be in somewhat of a, a drought. But the other thing that I think that people aren't really paying attention to is yes they might have started out fast out the blocks and looked very good Aston but look at who have caught them you know that Mercedes and Ferrari were well off the pace compared to Aston at the start of the season and suddenly they reeled them in and I think that kind of plays into this narrative as well it's not just that Aston have got haven't improved it's just that some of the teams that are around them have improved to the point that they've actually gone beyond where Aston originally were and that's kind of played into this whole narrative yeah no I see that and this is actually one of the more entertaining things about teams that are spreading out their efforts versus teams that come in one big leap 
they make the big leap, they look very good, but then they tend to revert back over time to, to where they came from as, as development from other teams, which is steady or an ongoing, sort of, sort of nibbles, nibbles them back down. The thing that I also want to talk about, McLaren, and, and we can't ignore this, is their new wind tunnel. I see that as either a huge advantage for them or a potential massive catastrophe. So so talk a little bit about their new wind tunnel, how they think it's going to help them. And the thing that scares me most, or the thing that's most interesting to me, is that they're not putting their current car in that tunnel at all. And I just would think from a validation point of view, maybe you would do that once? I don't know. Aside from the fact that you can't. From a regulation point of view, you can only use one tunnel at the same time. Aside from some very uh, quite tight regulations around correlation. Um, but essentially, the season you're in, you run that, it, you run in one tunnel. You can't change tunnels throughout the course of a year. And that's why they've obviously earmarked next year as the first time that they will enter into their own wind tunnel having used uh, the the Toyota tunnel in Cologne for what is probably a decade now. Um, And at the time, and probably still is, is one of the best tunnels on the planet. Uh, And that is why McLaren moved there. Uh, We've obviously seen other teams use that that facility as well because there are two tunnels on site. Uh, Force India, Red uh, Racing Point, whatever they were called at the time, uh, have used that facility and we've seen others in there as well. Uh, in the past Um, but it was at the cutting edge uh, a decade ago obviously things move on um, and I think from a logistical point of view uh, that is where McLaren are hoping to to make the most gains is that having a that having their own tunnel uh, brings everything back in house uh, they obviously had their own tunnel in the past as well, moved out to, to, to Cologne to use the Toyota tunnel. Um, but I think that's primarily where they think that they'll make the most gains. Obviously, they'll have the most up-to-date tunnel on the grid as well. Um, but I think from a production point of view, from a having your staff in the right position point of view, uh, all of those things will add up to something that helps them in the long run perhaps not in the short term because they're so used to the operation that they've been running for such a long time. Um, and I understand that Toyota are also going to help in the transition period uh, from, from some uh, respects. So hopefully for McLaren, this is a good move. I think it will be, but I don't think it will make a major difference in the very, very short term. As soon as they turn that tunnel on, it, it's not going to make uh, you know, it's not going to gain the massive amounts of performance, but it should do in the long term. And I guess I would just say from my point of view, the concern that I have is that it is a new tunnel. And so if any of your mathematical tools, if any, it, it seems like it could be very easily be an issue where they show up and say, oh, the wind tunnel gave us these numbers, but we don't see these numbers on the track. And so that would be my major concern. Is that a realistically is that much of a possibility, do you think? It, it is a possibility, yes. However, it's all about interpretation at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, you look at the what is considered to be mistakes that have been made by Mercedes under this generation of regulations, and some people have point, pinpointed that to be the wind tunnel that's in use. However, you look over the other side of the fence and Aston Martin used the same tunnel uh, and have made great gains 
against the, the the rest of the field. So, you know, it, it, it's how you use those tools uh, and how the the people interpret interpret uh, the information that is generated from them. Okay, last question, and this is just again based on something that I saw Andrea Stella say, which was that they feel like what they did this season didn't really go far enough. Are they just going to iterate what they have or are they, are they going for a much bigger redesign for next season? I think again, it it comes down to the fact that you're sort of locked into certain design um, areas of the car. If you haven't done the right things in the beginning, Uh, things like the crash structures, uh, the cockpit position, you know, these are uh, the way that the coolers are set up, how you house the power unit. All of these things are sort of locks into that design and it's very difficult to make those changes throughout the course of the season uh, if you don't have the resources to do so because you're busy concentrating on other areas that you might have made mistakes in. So I do think that there there's areas that obviously McLaren will continue to, to make improvements on, as will the rest of the field. Uh, but it, it's a constant constant process um at the end of the day the rb20 is going to be superior to the rb19 just purely because they will be able to iterate beyond uh where they are currently and it's up to the rest of the teams then to make that 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 step towards them um i I do think uh that uh mclaren will continue to make gains um and I think the reason being is is how we've got now got the the system set up in terms of how much of a percentage of wind tunnel and CFD time each team gets throughout the course of a season. Obviously, with the reset being halfway through, and then again at the start of a season, it does allow for teams to to make a jump and continue to jump forward if they if they make that jump at the right point. And that I think might be the key to why McLaren did their upgrade when they did. Because when they took the temperature of the field for the reset, uh, McLaren was still in sixth place, wasn't it? Correct, yes. Well, then perhaps it was a smart thing to wait till after that to bring your big update. It's always, there's always a competition in Formula One, occasionally to be not good, it would seem. Yeah, well, it's like we've said before, Matt, that the competition isn't always on the track. It's how you develop your car off track and how you work the regulations to suit yourself and the sporting regulations, not just the technical regulations, the sporting regulations, which is where these lie. You know, if you interpret them differently to to your competition, then there's an area to make gains in. All right. We've talked a bit about Aston, but I do have a specific question. Aside from the obvious, you don't know anything that you're happy just to tell me and not the other 40,000 or so listeners that might be paying attention to this about about what's going on with the flexi wing. Um, well, it, it's still at a rumor stage at this stage, isn't it? Okay. You know, we, we, we've not got the full story because there was no technical directive is the main issue here. Um, it was a case of somebody perhaps being told this isn't quite as we anticipated it should be. Now, I helped with an article over on motorsport.com about the pivots that were in place on the wings uh, that were different between the two specifications, the one that started the season and the one that came in as part of the upgrade update. It's not an upgrade because it's not always an upgrade. Sometimes it's a downgrade. Um, But the flat pivots, you're allowed three. 
um, and they all have to operate within a certain parameter of the uh, the axis. So we know that obviously that the flaps can be moved up and down to allow for more downforce, etc. Um, we've all seen the onboards of how flexible front wings are, and they have to be flexible because unfortunately, if they weren't, they would break. So there has to be some flexibility built into the wings to enable them to pass the crash past the the push tests but also obviously so that they don't actually fail Uh, but obviously there's a margin somewhere in the middle there that allows for more performance and we're talking about the difference between adding downforce and also reducing drag and teams have been playing this game for decades it's not nothing it's nothing new we have a flexi debate every single season about some components on the car whether it be the front wing the rear wing the floor the side pods, the engine cover, something is always going to flex and it's always going to become a story. And and this appears to be that particular point in the season. And it correlates to where they obviously had the downfall in terms of their performance drop-off alongside everything else that's obviously going on narrative-wise against Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren uh, and that backdrop. So um, in terms of what's actually supposed to be occurring i would imagine it's to do with how much that the the wing flexes under load uh and i just think that they were nudged to say perhaps this isn't quite as it should be please can you adjust something in the way that the wing operates in order that it doesn't flex as much and that is something that the fia have been studying for a long time because they now monitor the onboards as well to pick up on these things it's not only about the 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 tests that they do in advance of a race re, re, race weekend, uh, they're monitoring throughout uh, both front and rear wings. So um, I think it's just a case of let's let's just try and rein this in a little bit before all the other teams try to do something similar or more aggressively, and we end up with a with a major fight on our hands to keep things under control. Okay, that's fair enough. And is that then? Because we do have Mike Crack saying, yeah, we did put updates on. Yeah, the updates are working, but we're not on top of them yet. And I'm going to ask you before we move on to explain that but. And no, not that kind of a but, you filthy-minded listeners. I mean, the but, they're not working as expected. Do you have a sense of which updates have, I don't know, destabilized maybe be the right word to use here, the car a bit and made it harder for the drivers? Or is it really a case that they're just a bit lost at this point? Yeah, I mean, if we if we think about what the updates were, uh, the the main one was to the side pod structure. So the large water slide gully that we talked about earlier, they moved the the position at which that starts and where it finishes, and they also increased the side of the size of the undercut. So around the centre of the car is what we're talking about. They also had the new front wing, which I've already just mentioned, uh, some changes to the floor structure. uh, And since then, there has been further modifications. Now, the interesting part is that they reverted to an old specification of the undercut on the last race at Spa, which kind of identifies where they think that the problem might be because of the flow structures we've already talked about and how they all interact with one another. Now. If something has changed at the front end of the car, which is the assumption or the rumour that is circulating around, then that obviously bears to how you have a problem with the flow structures downstream with the area under the side 
pods with the undercoats, how those things that have changed suddenly now don't work because something upstream of it has been changed and doesn't work as it was planned. So these things perhaps did work at a certain point until certain things were reined in and then those things don't work anymore and you have to start to backpedal a little bit to try to get the similar amount of performance it's all a balancing act at the end of the day we, they're not the only team that you see walk, have walked back developments this season other teams have made changes and had to walk them back because they don't work as they anticipated uh, uh, and they might produce more downforce locally but they disrupt things either up or downstream of that particular area so it's a difficult balancing act that all of the teams face, and I think that's where where uh, Aston Martin might have uh, fallen down slightly this uh, with this particular side of things. I will say you intrigue me a bit with mention of other teams that have walked back developments. Um, which teams would be another notable example? Uh, well, we've seen McLaren do that in the past. We've seen Ferrari do it. Uh, it tends to be with floor th- with the areas around the floor uh, because they'll try certain things that they've seen perhaps or they've adopted from from other teams. Uh, they might think that it will work because they've seen results in the wind tunnel or CFD that have been promising. But when you put them on the car and you're talking about uh, ride height changes and variations, uh, they don't work in, in the real world as you would anticipate them to. So... It's not, as I say, the first time that you would see it. Uh, it's just that we don't often talk about these things because they're not considered to be updates or upgrades, as, as many would consider. They're more of a retrograde or a downgrade uh, to to a previous part. And that is one thing that perhaps gets uh, left out of the, the discussion because most people now look at the documentation that the teams have to give in the car presentation document prior to a race weekend and they just assume that everything is an upgrade when in reality, sometimes teams, as I say, have to walk things back and retrograde or, or downgrade things that haven't worked that they've already introduced. Well, and that is why we are lucky to have people like yourself to uh, point out the difference and and when the teams are doing these sorts of things. But it it is, I will say, I do sort of enjoy the documentation just because if you watch it over time, you can sort of see where teams are having to pay the most attention to areas. And I know that sometimes they do things that they don't put on there too, which also kind of messes with the ability to draw two serious conclusions from it. But is that an advantage for you in some ways to sort of just have things all quantified in categories ahead of time? Does it just save you some Excel spreadsheet work? Um from a from a workload point of view, it has changed how I operate over the course of a race weekend. As that is undeniable, because most of my time in the pre car presentation document era uh, was about spotting changes. Now we kind of have a scenario where we're given a huge amount of information uh, from the teams themselves, so they have to present what has changed from one race to another. However, as I say, it doesn't preclude the the downgrade scenario, the retrograde scenario. And we have noticed that some of the teams do tend to miss changes that they've made to the car or they'll generalise things. Oh, well, we've changed the side pod, but they've also changed the bit that connects to the floor, the engine cover, uh, the you know everywhere else around the car, uh, but they've just generalised it as, as one big change. So you still have to play the game. You know, it, 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 there's still a huge amount of effort that goes into try to understand what has changed and how it's changed, 
but uh, it, it has made life a little bit more uh, of an easier task pre-race weekend. Let's put it that way. I will accept that. And that's also another great advertisement why people should go and read your articles and pay attention to this and not just look at someone who tweets out a document and say, okay, now I know everything that's going on because there's always more to the story. I'm having a bit of a quandary here. The teams that I really want to talk about now are Alpine for, I think, obvious reasons, given the mass exodus of talent from that team and Williams, which has been surprising, but raises the age old question of can they ever actually add downforce to their car and still be successful? I know the answer since 2014 has generally been no, but you know, you keep hoping maybe this will be the magic combination. But then it also made me realize that why am I not really interested in talking about Ferrari and Mercedes so much? And so I want to start with Mercedes then. I and I might have done it to myself. I might have psyched myself out. But I've been saying for a while now they have a Franken car because they brought the the chassis and the setup for the zero pods and they can't fix it to next season. So am I wrong in just saying, well, there'll be races they do very well in where they optimize, but there's just a limit to what we're going to see out of them for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail pretty much on the head there, to be honest, Matt. Um, Essentially, the car will show up at certain races because it suits that particular circuit characteristic and it won't show up at other races because it just simply doesn't suit that particular circuit. You've also got to throw on top, obviously, how it operates with the tyres, uh, which obviously we had the changing construction at, at Silverstone. Um, the weekend format, whether it's a sprint race weekend or a, or a conventional race weekend, those tend to be uh, areas where Mercedes can either make big gains on the, the rest of the field or make big losses because of the way that they're able to find or not find the sweet spot of the car. Uh, and, and I did read a comment recently that uh, they were they were struggling in terms of the fact that it, it, it's a car that is quite dead in certain corners uh, at certain points. It just doesn't do what, it, what it's supposed to do from an aerodynamic point of view. And, and, and that's the... That's the problem that they're, they're going to struggle with because, as you say, it's a Franken car. Um, the, there's no there's no glossing over the fact that they will have a very different car next year. And this is really just a, a sort of step towards that and way, a, a way in which to learn how to make that, that transition. Yeah, just find the limits so they know what they have to swap to go in the direction they really want to go in. And I think Ferrari. I mean, actually, I can't say Ferrari is actually, I think, doing well, all things being equal, but they have jettisoned last season a big chunk of their technical brains. And I just have a sense that they're sort of reached the point of, well, we ran out of the previous team's plans and we're not next season yet where we're going to be going in whatever path whoever's left has decided to put them on. So. We'll see them get better and optimize, but are they, are they carrying on with the plan that Bonato set forth with them, or do you get the sense that they're going to sort of change it up a little bit next season too? Well, I think Ferrari, as always, are in a bit of a transition phase. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to be <laughs> part of the course for them. Uh, they 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 tend to get in this cycle where. Uh, they're a bit like a, a football team or soccer team that 
for for yourself, Matt. That that they sack the wrong, they they sack the head, they sack the manager, and they think that's going to solve all their problems. But they forget that tactically they might be a bit inept, and they might not have the right resources in the right places. They might be funded in the wrong areas, uh, and, and unfortunately, that's not isolated to just Ferrari. Um, fans of the U- from the UK of a certain program of a certain era. Uh, only fools and horses. There's a there's a saying that uh, Del Boy always used to come up with about Rodney will be millionaires next year, but next year never comes. Um, and and that tends to be uh, the way in which I see certain Formula One teams operate. In as much as that, there's a cycle that goes on, and they never seem to catch up to that cycle. And when they're very very close to that, where they think they need to be, suddenly just drifts away from them. And Ferrari were in that position with, with this this particular generation of car. Um, they were almost there at one point and then it sort of started to drift away from them um, uh, as they, as the rest of the field sort of caught up to them in many respects. So um, Ferrari do have, I believe, I read that Fred has hired 25 people from outside the company that he is waiting to bring in. But as usual, the biggest problem in Formula One is not actually getting those people it's the time at which you can then utilise them with gardening leave. Uh, Luke Serra has left Mercedes and will go to Ferrari. But at the moment, unless they can agree something with Mercedes, he will not start work on the car until 2025. That's two years from here. So, you know, that that's the major problem that you have when you're trying to steal personnel from a, from another team, uh, let's say, is that unfortunately uh, there's, a, there's a time frame uh, to to getting those people working on on the project, and you know what just strikes me as being a little bit well, I guess the word ironic might actually be appropriate there, is that it's the FIA that could just say, well, no, maximum gardening leave is three months or six months, because they're all about well, let's collapse the field, let's make let's make it all more competitive at the top. But one of the biggest obstacles to that is that knowledge from the winning team can take years to spread in the paddock. And when you only have a regulation set that's essentially like, what, four or five years long, well, you know, if three years is the earliest you can get any information from someone who's been a senior member of another team that's more successful, well, then that's not really a lot of time left to do anything about it or make the racing more interesting. Yeah, it is a problematic area. And I think the the one area where the FIA will struggle with that is from a HR point of view and the different laws that, that would um, stop them doing those sort of things in terms of, you know, different laws in different countries regarding the employment side of things. But um, it, it is problematic, It's all, but it has always been the case in Formula One. Uh, and it's why we see uh, teams disbanded in many ways um, over a period of time. You know, the, the likes of Red Bull will run uh, very well between 2009 and 2013, but not only did the regulations uh, come as a, as a surprise to them for 2014 with the, the power unit side of things, you also had a, a, dis, a disbanding uh, of some of their uh, personnel. So uh, you sort of see that it's a cyclic event within Formula One with personnel moving from one team to another uh, and obviously you do have key personnel um, that tend to stay within a certain team for a very long time uh, and getting those people are, is incredibly difficult so 
it's a problem that Formula One will always have, I, I do feel, uh, unless, as you say, they can somehow write it into the regulations that gardening leave uh, becomes a, a maximum amount of time rather than a minimum amount of time. Okay. So you bring up the power unit issues, and that gives me a convenient springboard to have a brief chat about Alpine. And the place that I want to start is the is like from a technical point of view, I think an interesting point, which is their complaint to the FIA that despite there being an engine freeze, magically they're now 20 or 30 brake horsepower down on all the other power units, and that that's very unfair and something should be done about it. So my question is, how big of a deal is the power unit discrepancy they're talking about, really? I mean, yes, I've done a little bit of my own research, but I'm curious to get your opinion on it. And secondly, looking at it, because you also look at the cars and how they're designed, are they exaggerating a bit here, trying trying to get a little bit of help they're not entitled to? Or, or do you really think this is, uh, once again, very dropping the uh, ball, so to speak? Uh, I think it's a combination of factors, as it always is. Obviously, Formula One is a very political sport, uh, and the more and the, the the louder you shout, the more attention you draw to yourself, and and that means that you tend to get something in terms of your favour. Um, I do think that Red Bull made a massive, massive gain in this respect by initiating the the engine freeze in the beginning, anyway, uh, right at a point when Honda will leave leaving in inverted air quotes uh, the sport and had already caught up to the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari in many ways and perhaps have surpassed them in some aspects. Um, But as you mentioned, Alpine, I think some of their main issues are that they only have themselves working on that power unit. You know, they've got no other teams running the, the Renault power unit and that has been the case for quite some time now uh, so you've only got one data set to work with they do seem to need a lot of cooling for that car compared to their competitors as well it's perhaps not as bad as it was uh, when we think about the massive engine cover that they had sort of two or three seasons ago uh, but that was based upon a chassis that was quite a few years old um, but yeah it, it is a difficult one isn't it because at the end of the day um, they are at a deficit to their rivals that you can tell that, that, that there's a, a deficit between them uh, and the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari and Honda. Uh, but how do you make that equitable? How do you suddenly take away a freeze and make it so that one team can make an advantage on the rest? And how do you measure that success rate? Because if you suddenly open the floodgates and say Alpine slash Renault slash whoever they might be in the future suddenly make a massive gain and it's more than 30 horsepower i think there might be some complaints from mercedes ferrari and honda or red bull um because then they'll want to catch up so it's a really difficult one and a a tightrope to be walked in in many respects okay i i had i had looked at where they might be this is interesting to me and the reason i'm asking is i'm sort of saying if we set aside the power unit for a minute and look at the Alpine car. Like what I did was I just basically assigned a numerical value to what that was worth by talking to a couple of different people and seeing, you know, what was in print generally. And I found that they would be ahead of McLaren right now if you just gave them that amount of power per race, just applied it to race finishes. 
And that if you took away the three races they didn't actually finish in either car and gave them points for that, well, they'd only be about 40 points back of the uh, battle between Ferrari and Aston. So when I looked at that, the thought that I had was not that these are real numbers per se, but it made me think that the Formula One team, the Formula One team side of it had kind of delivered on where they said they wanted to be within what I would consider to be a reasonable margin of error. And I'm just curious, looking at what they've done, would you agree with that? Have they sort of moved the ball forward on the aerodynamic and uh, side of things, ignoring the fact that the engine is obviously hurting them to some degree? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I I find it very interesting that Alpine have perhaps been one of the uh, outstanding development teams from an aerodynamic point of view uh, under this regulation set because we've seen other teams copying many of their solutions very much in the way that we used to see with the likes of Force India um, when they were punching above their weight. And this kind of has the same vibe in as much as that Alpine's, as you say, chassis side, aero side, are having to punch above their weight to be able to deal with the deficit of the power unit. And as you say, if you sort of equalise the things out, then yeah, perhaps they would be uh, a little bit further up the field uh, relative to the rest of their rivals. Uh, it's, it is interesting, as I say, that they are the ones that have led the rear wing development, for argument's sake, in terms of uh, the tip um, design. Uh, and other teams have copied that. Other teams copied the water slide gully. So, you know, they've not had bad ideas, It's just that because they can't um, get the performance from the power unit, they're not able to to vault themselves into the into the the rest of the field as they would wish, and and that unfortunately, as uh, Otmar has recently said, is a failing of the the managerial strategy of that particular team Um, from a you know you know the higher ups. want something that isn't achievable in a very short space of time. And that has been a problem uh, of uh, the the brand in general for a very long time. Uh, if you think about people that have been in charge at Enstone in the past, uh, and unfortunately Otmar is just the, the latest uh, of uh, those type of people to, to, to be given the door uh, because they haven't got results quick enough when unfortunately it's not really their problem. Uh, it's just the fact that, you know, the, the mechanism of Formula One and, and how everything works uh, to get the results. So if I was to call them French Ferrari, perhaps, I would not be too far off the mark. Um, I do have one small question. I had thought that Matt Harmon was the lead sort of either aerodynamics guy or lead designer at Alpine. And while Otmar and Alan Permain and Pat Fry, perhaps, will have an impact, technically speaking, it seems like a lot of the staff directly responsible for designing the car is still there. Am I wrong? Like, like I'm for the three Alpine, Alpine fans that are left, I'm just trying to find something for them to hang their hat on. Uh, am I not wrong in saying that Pat Fry's going to Williams? Yeah, he's going to Williams. Yeah, so there, there's another major um, factor that's been lost within the team. Um, obviously... Alan Permain is he's probably the biggest one out of that, the bunch to go because he's such a mainstay at Alpine, Renault, Benetton, 
whatever the name they wanted to trade, Lotus, whatever name they traded under, he's been there for for forever. Um, so it's obviously uh, disenchanting, I would imagine, for for many of the staff to see somebody of his stature disappear from the team. Um, but as you say, from a technical standpoint, in terms of the chassis and aero side of things, there's not too much been going on in terms of movement, although they have lost uh, personnel in the past, they sort of steadied that ship. So from a technical standpoint, it shouldn't be too too drastic an issue. But if the people that come in have the short-term mentality again because of the leadership from above, then obviously you're going to have a, another situation where things don't gel and the wrong people get blamed and the cycle continues once more. So it needs a long-term objective uh, from Alpine uh, in, in respect of how they think that they should be doing over the course of this set of regulations and maybe even the next set of regulations rather than just thinking results, 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 because unfortunately that won't do them any favours. No, indeed it won't. Sorry, Alpine fans. I tried, but it's not looking good according to the old Magic 8-Ball here. Um, And briefly, before we wrap things up, I asked earlier, halfway jokingly, about Williams and and adding downforce. Uh, but what what is your take? I mean, if if we go by what they're good at right now, they should do well at Monza, and then yeah, whatever they get, they get the rest of the season. But do you see this? Uh, do you see this starting to turn for them technically next season? I think we're a ways away from it turning that quickly. And again, I think. Uh, it, it needs to be a long-term um, scenario that plays out for, for the likes of Williams because they are so far behind from a resources point of view. I think jo- James Vales mentioned recently that from an infrastructure point of view, uh, they're probably 10 years behind where Mercedes were when he left. And that is, you know, in Formula One terms, it, it's massively different. And it's obviously why they are where they are in the pecking order. I think they are another team that are massively punching above their weight uh, because they've made some interesting decisions in terms of how they operate the car from race weekend to race weekend. They've kind of done what we've seen from the likes of Force India, as I've already mentioned in the past, uh, Williams did in 2014, and that's that they've basically tried to uh, create a car that is uh, a little bit more benign in terms of its setup, but also is very quick at the quick circuits um, because they just don't have the downforce to play with, you know they don't they're not able to trim uh, their car uh, at, at the high downforce circuits to to get the, the levels of performance that they're they're looking for. Uh, I do think that they've got a, an exceptional talent from Alex Albon's point of view. Uh, he's really doing well with that car. Logan, obviously uh, a, a rookie, so you can't read too much into that. But uh, Alex is doing a very good job with that car um, as he probably did in previous uh, seats that he's had in the past, but couldn't really show them up because of of the Red Bull situation. Um, But yeah, uh, Williams, I think is more of a long-term project. Unfortunately, they're not going to suddenly break into the front of the pack, but they are doing a very good job with what they have at their disposal. Okay. Well, I got to say, thanks so much for taking all the time to sit here and explain all the complicated things to me in small little words. I I do really appreciate it. And for the listeners and viewers, where can people find you? Where should they look for your work? Well, the best place is on that platform that doesn't really know what it's called anymore. 
Um, but I still call it Twitter. Uh, and it's Summers F1 over on there. All right. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on your social media of choice. And until next time, this has been Missed Apex Podcast Tech Time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.